Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. So, I want to step away for a minute from our history of Israel trajectory to address this extraordinary national moment we're having here in 2020. Or really, international moment, because we're seeing protests for racial justice in something like 20 countries around the world. Black Lives Matter has dramatically spilled into the global consciousness, and I know it's leaving a lot of people wondering, well, what can I do? What should I do? And maybe most fundamentally, how do I fully understand what is going on? Let me say at the outset here that I'll be posting several good sources on my website. Head to jewaudono.com and scroll down to the latest episode button to see some articles, websites, and books. It's far from an exhaustive list, but it'll get you started. For those of us for whom racism has not been a daily lived experience, we're getting a rapid education. And really, that education has been out there for a very, very long time. But most of us, which is to say most of the United States, has been neglecting it for a very long time. Even where we've had the intellectual background, it's clear that all of us need to dig deeper into the extraordinary pain, anger, frustration, but also hope that is being expressed by people of color right now. I know that I've been reading a lot less Jewish stuff this last couple of weeks, and many more things that people are sending me about the experiences of black Americans, white fragility, systemic racism, and the whole lot. But of course, Jewish is what we do here at Jew I Don't Know, so I'm getting a lot of questions that tend to fall into two categories. What does Judaism say about what's going on, and what is the history between black Americans and Jewish Americans? Now, those are two big questions involving deep learning. The best that I can offer you today is a broad survey of some key points, what you ought to know so that we can at least get a good starting point and kind of go from there. And let's also remember one very important thing. There are plenty of people who fall into both groups. That is, there are Jews of color. Although historically we tend to see this as a question of white Ashkenazi Jews of European background and black Americans, the reality, especially today, is that we have a great many Jews from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. They are profoundly impacted by both Jewish tradition and the minority experience here in America. It seems to me that we're tackling two diseases at once right now. The coronavirus that came upon us suddenly and invisibly, and the racism one that has been in plain sight for hundreds of years. The first one, we have devoted trillions of dollars and resources to fight, wrecked our economies to destroy, and have generally decided that any means justify the ends to save lives. Fighting the pandemic has become the centerpiece of our collective social, national, and global efforts. But the other disease has played out over centuries instead of weeks. Racism has ruined far more than 100,000 lives, yet we have chosen to devote too few national resources to eradicating it. We are occasionally outraged or intrigued, but have mostly chosen to look away. It's clear that both diseases are an emergency, the second one all the more so from neglect, but requiring no less, and maybe even more, of our efforts to eliminate. If you want to know what Judaism says, you can start with this phrase from the Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers. It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. I'm your host, Jason Harris. And this is Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So as I said, people are asking me what Judaism says about what's going on. 
which leaves the door wide open to consider any number of issues. Racism, racial justice, social activism, systemic inequality, police brutality. Where to begin? There's no one answer. But I think we can find a good fundamental starting point. In the book of Exodus, we find Moses in Egypt raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. Buddy realizes that he is, in fact, a Hebrew, having witnessed the labors of his kinsfolk in slavery. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, so Moses strikes and kills the Egyptian. He then quickly flees Egypt for the land of Midian. In the next verse, he encounters the seven daughters of the priest of Midian by a well. The women are attacked. And, says the Torah, Moses rose to their defense. A popular interpretation of this section is as a call to action. The biblical imperative to defend the powerless, whether slave or shepherd woman. A deeper reading finds something else interesting. In the first instance, Moses attacks the Egyptian only upon realizing that he, Moses, is also a Hebrew. He rises to defend the slave only when he recognizes that they are kin. But in the second instance, which occurs just five verses later, the women he defends are not Hebrews. They are of the land of Midian. Somewhere underneath the text of these two verses lies a core lesson that Moses seems to have learned. All people are worthy of protection, whether or not they are of your tribe. So I think we're onto something with this little biblical story, and it's this. If you take any topic and study its Jewish textual foundations and you keep peeling back the layers, you will eventually find yourself back at a single seed, that all of humanity is created in the image of God. This is the animating idea in Judaism of the relationship of one person to another. You don't even have to believe in God to accept it. It's about recognizing the holiness in each person, the essences that we, who are all mortal, share with one another. So the simplest answer I can give you about what Judaism says about this moment is a rejection of racism, police brutality, discrimination, oppression. Judaism cannot hold space for racism because the color of one's skin cannot be what separates one human from another. All are made in the image of God. All must be treated with the kind of dignity that has been absent from America's relationship with people of color for centuries. And if you know of a police department that would be interested in working through this tech study with me, feel free to connect us. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. But of course, it isn't quite that simple, because in the real world, humans struggle with each other. It's not so easy to act according to the idea of human holiness, because things get in the way. Politics, economics, history, culture, circumstance. Human relations are complex. I changed my mind about eight times about where to begin discussing this vast topic that we might call black-Jewish relations. After all, these are communities that encountered each other in the colonial era or really even before that with the European voyages to what they termed the New World. And as I mentioned, there are Jews of color. The communities are more blended than we traditionally imagined. But I interpret that when people are asking me about black Jewish relations, they are generally referring to the civil rights era of the 1960s. And I want to be really cautious in saying that everything I'm discussing here is the broad strokes, and just a starting point for understanding a rich and complicated history. 
And to that end, I think a reasonable starting point, at least to get us going, is with the short telegram that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel sent President John F. Kennedy on June 16, 1963. I look forward to privilege of being present at meeting tomorrow, Rabbi Heschel wrote. Likelihood exists that Negro problem will be like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declaration. We forfeit the right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. Church, synagogue have failed. They must repent. Ask of religious leaders to call for national repentance and personal sacrifice. Let religious leaders donate one month's salary toward fund for Negro housing and education. I propose that you, Mr. President, declare state of moral emergency. A Marshall Plan for Aid to Negroes is becoming a necessity. The hour calls for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. For Rabbi Heschel and many other clergy, civil rights weren't just a political policy choice, but a moral imperative deeply connected to Jewish values. And therefore, the absence of civil equality was an affront to the divine sanctity of life that is fundamental to religion. Heschel connected this religious issue with political ones, like housing and education. Two months after Heschel sent his telegram to Kennedy, Rabbi Norman Lamb, who was the head rabbi of the Jewish Center in New York City, delivered a sermon entitled, The Religious Foundation of Business. He spoke not only of individual lynchings against black Americans, but what he called the greater blot on our record, the methodical economic exploitation of one segment of our population, the systematic oppression of one race as the source of cheap labor and its designation as the first to suffer in any economic recession. When the economy of a great nation is built upon such patent injustice, it is a crime of avodah zarah, which translates as a breach of faith. It bespeaks lack of faith in God, who is avachad lekulanu, one father for all humans, making us all brothers, he said. Lamb, like Heschel, expressed American democracy's failures with religious terminology. So part of what we're seeing here is an appeal to a religious ethic as a persuasive argument for Jewish support for civil rights. All people are created in the image of God, and that is a value many Jews felt they should be fighting for. Heschel and Lamb were amongst the most prominent Jewish clergy who involved themselves deeply in the 1960s push for civil rights, which had by then already been going on for decades. In the early years of organizing and institution building, going back to the early 1900s, Jews worked right alongside black Americans in the nationwide movements for justice and equality. Jews were part of the founding and early leadership of the NAACP, funding its efforts and serving as some of its highest officers. Jewish labor groups went to bat for black workers, even against the opposition of the American Federation of Labor. And Jewish organizations like the American Jewish Committee and the Anti-Defamation League, both of which are still around today, repeatedly took legal action against discriminatory policies in housing, education, healthcare, labor, and more. The committee had hired a black psychologist named Kenneth Clark to study the impact of school segregation on black children. His research was used by the Supreme Court in the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Whether civil rights lawyers in the North or activists on the ground in the South, you could find significant numbers of Jews participating in the struggle for civil rights. In 1964, two New York Jews, Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodman, joined a local black activist in Mississippi named James Cheney. 
The three, all in their early 20s, were engaged in voter registration efforts as part of the Freedom Rider campaign that year. On June 21, 1964, the three were ambushed by a group of KKK and local police, murdered and buried in the woods. The ensuing federal investigation gave the incident the nickname Mississippi Burning. The outrage over their executions helped spur popular support for the passage of the Civil Rights Act that same year. The Jewish community now felt that they, too, had martyrs for the cause, giving them a kinship with black America. Rabbi Heschel and Martin Luther King Jr. famously enjoyed a friendship based on shared notions of justice, social equality, and the religious imperative towards human liberation. Heeding King's call for religious leaders to join the Selma March for Voting Rights in 1965, Heschel walked with King right up in the front. The rabbi remarked that he felt like his legs were praying. That phrase has become a social justice rallying cry in the Jewish community ever since. So one part of this story is these decades of black and Jewish cooperation on civil rights, racial justice, and combating bigotry. You hear people refer to the golden era of relations in the 1950s and 60s. This period of mutual respect, understanding, and support, characterized by standing together to fight for each other's causes. And there is a lot of truth to this narrative. But it's also an incomplete one, because there's also been a great deal of tension between the two communities. And that's an important story for us to understand, too. It seems like weekly, somebody's getting shot. That's right. Killed. So I'm standing here to say, I want everybody to just stop and pause. We're standing for a cause. Let's do this. Stop and pause. We're standing for a cause. Stop. This second story around the divisions between blacks and Jews is really important for us to know. The rise of black nationalism and its attendant black power movement had a significant impact on black Jewish relations, particularly as we get into the late 1960s. Black nationalism sought to deepen black identity through political, economic, and social empowerment, harnessing the unique experiences of black Americans. Rather than achieve that empowerment for the purposes of assimilation to the majority white society, black nationalism sought to maintain the distinctness of black identity in its own right, and with a sense of pride and purpose that would unite black people everywhere. Its most famous practitioner was Marcus Garvey. By the 1960s, the black power movement took the ideals of black nationalism and merged them with the notion that the civil rights movement in its current form wasn't working well enough or fast enough. Black power emphasized black self-sufficiency and the idea that black Americans needed to seize for themselves the kind of empowerment that white America wasn't delivering. Building black institutions, from politics to education to local black businesses, that became the focus, as was the idea that these institutions ought to be led and driven exclusively by black Americans. And here we have Malcolm X and the Black Panthers at the forefront of this movement. What this meant for Jews was that there wasn't really a space for them within the black power movement like there was in the coalition movement led by Martin Luther King Jr., the black power movement wasn't looking to build alliances with white America. The emphasis on exclusive black leadership meant that Jews didn't find themselves in the ranks of these organizations. So there was a separation between the two people. They weren't meeting each other in the black nationalist space. There was also a problem in some corners of the black power movement with anti-Semitism. It's a tricky topic because there's a lot of nuance. But in broad strokes, the black power movement saw itself fighting white oppression, and Jews were seen in this context as white. Therefore, Jews were part of the white establishment. They were part of the problem. 
For the last 50 years, surveys consistently show black Americans having a more anti-Semitic attitude than the general population. Though a big part of that is due to education. The higher your education, the less you tend to subscribe to anti-Semitic beliefs. But it's an irony, for black Americans also have the more difficult time accessing higher education than the general population. As I said, there's a lot of nuance. Part of the clash, too, was over Zionism in Israel, and remains so today, where Jews saw a successful national liberation movement, one that they felt should be recognizable to black power advocates, as it was recognized and supported by Martin Luther King Jr. Many in the black community, though, saw a European colonial project oppressing the native Palestinians. This put blacks and Jews at odds over one of the most singularly important issues to the Jewish community, that is, pride in and support for the state of Israel. It was a huge disappointment for American Jews, who had hoped that black Americans above all others would recognize Israel's underdog status in the Arab world. Black power anti-Semitism is most infamously represented by the Nation of Islam, especially its current leader, Louis Farrakhan. From praising Hitler as a great leader to insisting that it is blacks, not Jews, who are God's chosen people, Farrakhan and his movement have been overt in pushing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and beliefs. But the anti-Semitism problem was also more mainstream. Jesse Jackson was running for president in 1984 when he complained that New York City was Jaime Town, a slur against Jews. He quickly apologized and most Jews accepted him at face value, but his campaign never fully recovered. His slur highlighted the decades of tension between blacks and Jews, and brought new attention to the notion that the supposed golden age in relations during the 60s wasn't as rosy as portrayed. Black lives have always mattered. We have always been important. We have always meant something. We have always succeeded. Blacks and Jews were often working towards similar goals, but they were coming at it from very different experiences. And therein lies another tension point that a lot of American Jews didn't quite appreciate. Jews often felt like, hey, we're also an oppressed minority and know what it's like. Therefore, of course, it's only natural for blacks and Jews to stand together. The problem is that Jews didn't actually understand what it was like. Sure, the Jews had suffered a lot during the 20th century, but not so much in America. They weren't living with the racist legacy of slavery the way blacks were, and the black community was insulted whenever American Jews claimed to get it. And that's because Jewish Americans, by and large, prospered under the social and economic system that wasn't working for black America. The social and cultural bonds between the two groups frayed under the ever-widening economic gap, where Jewish Americans mostly saw huge gains in access to jobs, housing, education, healthcare, and political power, black Americans were lagging far behind white America. It became a lot harder for Jewish Americans to identify on a personal level with the struggles facing black Americans. We can debate another time whether Jews are really white in America or whether they are just another minority group, but there's no doubt that American Jews enjoyed many of the privileges and possibilities of white America. Less so in the southern states, but definitely in the northeast. Jews took part in the post-war white flight to the relative safety and prosperity of the suburbs, a movement that left hollowed out inner cities predominantly populated by black Americans. And many black Americans pointed out that even when it came to the activism around labor rights, Jews often occupied management positions, while black Americans were doing the lowest wage labor work. In the 1960s in Harlem, for instance, some one-third of the stores, especially the largest ones, were owned by Jews. 
These kinds of tensions could take on a racial edge, with black Americans expressing anti-Semitic stereotypes and Jews responding with their own classical racist allegations. And in some places, the disparity was made all the worse by the two communities living in close proximity to each other, each seeing the other as unfairly encroaching on their historic neighborhoods. In 1991, in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, a Hasidic Jew struck and killed a seven-year-old Caribbean child in a car accident. A few hours later, a group of young black men attacked a different Hasidic man, stabbing him to death in revenge. For three days, riots tore through the Jewish neighborhoods of Brooklyn. Hundreds were injured, numerous Jewish homes and businesses were attacked, and the police were so overwhelmed that at one point they had to retreat. The Reverend Al Sharpton led a march that burned an Israeli flag and saw a chance of death to the Jews. Many Jewish figures and local politicians referred to the riots as a pogrom, and used it to attack and ultimately defeat New York City Mayor David Dinkins, who was black. It was one of those terrible incidents in which all sides had a different perspective on the causes, but there was no doubt that the narrative had nearly all the elements we've been talking about, from police brutality against blacks but not whites, local housing policy that seemed to favor white Jews over blacks and Caribbean Americans, and a local economy that benefited the Jewish community over the black one, even though they lived mere streets apart. But what also emerged from Crown Heights riot was something of a return to the cooperation that had characterized the 1950s and 60s. Local leaders from both communities teamed up on interfaith projects and educational efforts in the schools, appearing together at communal efforts to heal from the tragedy. The Hasidic community began paying greater attention to their neighbors, lending more of their own resources and services to the black community. The two communities developed a system of communication to prevent any incidents from getting out of control. Jesse Jackson parachuted in to help rehabilitate his image, which was generally appreciated by the Jewish community. Although Al Sharpton later expressed regret reluctantly for his inflammatory rhetoric, many people in the Jewish community never really warmed up to him. And so the Crown Heights riot of 1991 represented both the positives and negatives of black-Jewish relations. It showed the gulf of inequality between the two communities, the many political, economic, and social divergences that kept blacks and Jews from a real fellowship, but in its aftermath, it also served as a reminder of certain commonalities, and the realization that working towards mutual respect, understanding, and cooperation served everyone's needs. Take your knee off our necks! 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 Justice. So today I think we're seeing Jewish Americans support Black Lives Matter in ways that they haven't supported such movements since the 1960s. And that's not to say Jewish organizations and individual Jews haven't fought for social justice these past decades. They have, don't get me wrong. But Black Power's emphasis on building up its own community's identity inspired Jewish Americans to do the same for themselves. Generally, Jewish communities have therefore fought for the issues that most deeply impacted them which sometimes overlapped with those of black America, but not always. But what I'm seeing today is overwhelming support for Black Lives Matter, and a recognition by the Jewish community that in this moment, the specific concerns of black Americans are of primary importance. It's still not without those same historic tensions. An element of the Black Lives Matter platform is that Israel is a genocidal state, it's a blatantly false allegation, one that I would argue is anti-Semitic, and given that around 95% of Jews support Israel, it's a claim that disturbs many Jews. 
You're also hearing allegations that Israel trains American police in how to use brutality against black Americans, as if America hadn't been using brutality against black Americans for hundreds of years before Israel existed. So there is still some wariness when it comes to Black Lives Matter, but on balance, as I say, you're seeing a lot of Jews pushing aside those concerns to focus on what seems to be the most important here and now. The anti-Semitism isn't mainstream. The fight for racial justice is. The Jewish community is straddling many sides here, because Jews of color are just as much a part of the contemporary American Jewish experience as Ashkenazi Jews of European heritage. This present moment can't be reduced to white Jews and black Americans, for plenty of people find themselves simultaneously in both the Jewish and black communities. Issues of racial justice can't be reduced to a question of how the Jewish community can best cooperate with the black community, because racial justice is today embedded within the lived experience of many Jews. One of the things you'll hear American Jews say is that they understand the feelings of black Americans because our faith tradition teaches us that we too were once slaves in Egypt. It's a well-meaning sentiment, but frankly, deeply unfair to the black Americans who struggle with the legacy of slavery in ways that American Jews don't. It's a real source of aggravation. But I think we're at the point where we don't have to look to the mythical ancient past for a sense of commonality. It's right here in our own community, as Ashkenazi Jews become more attuned to the experiences of black, Asian, Hispanic, and other Jews of color. The Ashkenazi Jewish community still has a lot of work to do to internalize its knowledge and acceptance of Jews of color. When we do, we'll find that their fights are very much ours too. As I said before, we're fighting two emergency diseases. The coronavirus pandemic has inspired a global network of intercommunal cooperation to eradicate a disease that threatens all of us with impunity. It's in all of our interest to expend the necessary resources to defeat COVID-19 as quickly as possible. But the other disease is man-made, baked into the fabric of America's political, economic, and social life, with so many entrenched interests invested in preserving the status quo. To resolve it requires no fewer resources than are deployed against the coronavirus, and no less a sense of urgency. But it also requires a different sort of resource. The ability for all of us to look deep within ourselves and our society, and to emerge with a resolute sense of purpose to do what it takes to right these historic wrongs. We do not have to complete the task, but we cannot neglect it either. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next time. Lee Throat. George Floyd! George Floyd!